0: I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. Thank you for again tuning us in this uh, lovely grayish day, and here's our guest.
1: Welcome to Health Matters. Yes, uh, this is Mark Beckoff. I'm supposed to be on the show.
0: Well, you are, and you made it absolutely right on time, Mark Beckoff. Thank you. Uh, okay. thanks, for, thanks for getting Thanks for getting in touch, as they say it goes. No problem. So am I just holding on? Nope, you're alive. We're happening now. You're a little okay. early, you're, you're a little early, but uh, we can we can live with that. Um, i I'm, uh, we're talking to Mark Beckoff, the author of a new book called Rewilding Our Hearts: Building Pathways of Compassion and Coexistence. And uh, Mark, we there's quite a lot to talk about in this book, given that it's such it has such a big footprint to it. So maybe you could start for our listeners' benefit and and give them kind of what you do when you kind of give them a synopsis of what the basic uh, uh, narrative of this book is is about.
1: Um, Well, first, thanks for having me on your show. Um, Sure. Yeah, I mean, really what rewilding is, is a personal transformation. There's a spiritual component. It deals with reconnecting with nature, becoming re-enchanted with nature, acting, as I say, from the inside out. So it's letting... What you're feeling in your heart direct your actions and your interactions with other humans, with other animals, and with nature, um, all based in... Yeah, uh, you know, basically on compassion and empathy,
0: mm-hmm. which sounds kind of like a Buddhist message. Is that uh, does that does that sort of is that what people tell you? Is that is this kind of compassion that you're talking about kind of the same kind of compassion that we might expect to hear from from our lamas and our our various Buddhist teachers?
1: <laughs> absolutely. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, I, I've been told this many times that it seems to have a very strong, you know, Buddhist, Buddhist overtones. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I, you know, frankly, I'm pleased it does. I think it does. I was, you know, personally, when I was developing these ideas over the last couple of years, it was motivated by how I try to interact in the world. I mean, I try to do the best I can. And also noticing that so much of what happens in the lives of most people, I mean, certainly Westerners, is we become unwilded. Um, you know, kids go to school and they sit in chairs all day. When when something has to go because they're being, you know, pressured to do more work, what goes is spontaneous play outside or nature walks. Mm-hmm. And so they're unwilded. And we're also unwilded because of intense busyness. I mean, and once again, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but, you know, so many people I know, they're just sailing all over the place because... Because there's not enough hours in the day. So one of the things that rewilding calls for is, you know, a personal transformation doing little things. You don't have to found a movement. Um, You know, you don't have to be wealthy and make huge contributions. You can go outside and breathe in fresh air. You can watch squirrels in Central Park, um, New York, which I've done. Um, you can appreciate flowers. You can appreciate, you know, the honeybees or um, birds who come to them. Um, but it's really based on doing small things, you know, in a sense for yourself, not in a selfish way, but doing small things to make yourself feel good and that, you know self feeling the feeling of feeling good will then motivate you to you know do things for others
0: so there 's a there 's a sort of a personal aesthetic about the whole thing in terms of what you just described at least as I hear what you 're saying and and so you 're saying that or at least you 're telling us that by by stopping and smelling the daisies as it were smelling the roses or the flowers you 're not only are you likely to then um rewild or at least, you know counterweight some of the unwilding that you're, you know, a, a constantly surrounded by, but that you're actually doing the world a good turn. So it's not a selfish project, even if you, your inner being is being, you know, benefited it, by, by being in that harmony and that relationship with nature of which we are all part, then we're, we're actually doing the good, for the, the good work of the world, even though, as you say, it's kind of a small thing. Is that, is that a fair rendition?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely. mean, it, you know, a lot of people think think when you say, you know, take care of yourself first, <clears throat> that there's an egocentric or, right. you know, real self-centered sort of, um, you know, philosophy to that. No, I mean, we know that when you feel good about yourself, you tend to feel good about others and the world at large. So that's why the rewilding is, a deep, is so deeply personal,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and it really says, <clears throat> take care of yourself first. Um, I write about what's called secondary trauma, and it's, you know, it's known that people who work in, uh, for example, in hospice or so people who work with you know, seriously ill human beings oftentimes just burn out. And it's not because they're bad people or lazy people. It's just they take on the illnesses and the, you know, the um, disease, if you will, of the people with whom they're working, and they suffer from secondary trauma because it, you know, kind of comes from the outside, and you see the same in people who work in the um, animal protection movement or in conservation and environmental issues. It's, you know, it's a 24 seven job. I mean, right, right. like when I, wake, when I wake up in the morning, you know, if the world were in a lot better place, my mailbox would probably be empty, but right. it's full. Right. Um, and so, <laughs> I say, take care of yourself. So I always say, I rest hard, I play hard, and I work hard. And I turn my brain off. And it's not because the problems aren't important, it's because I really want to rekindle myself and, you know, sort of fill myself up with gas, if you will, so that I can continue doing the work I do.
0: Well,. I think, for our listeners who have not are not aware of you or not aware of your d- deep background in this topic i 'd like to kind of drill back into kind of who you are, who you have been, and kind of where you 've been because I think you have such an important and useful message for all of us that um, if people understood that you 're an emeritus professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at University of california excuse me Colorado Boulder, and you 've written a number of other books, so talk about your professor professorial background, so our 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 listeners are thinking that this is not sort of just a sentimental nature lover. this is yeah. a, this is a scientist who's actually looked at this professionally for if you're an emeritus professor, presumably you've looked at it for quite a number of years. So talk a yeah. little bit tell us tell I've been us
1: for a really long time, right. Um, T- so tell yeah, us a little bit about I mean, your I'm background an academic. <laughs> I'm a scientist. Right. I, I love science, but I, I always say I love science, but I don't worship it. Mm-hmm. And really, um, my folks tell me that when I was three years old, I began asking them what other animals were feeling and what they were thinking, and that I was an ethologist, you know, a person who studies animal behavior from the
2: get-go. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's always just been part of me. <clears throat> um, I used to get really upset when I would see somebody, you know, abusing say a dog when I grew up in I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. There mm. weren't a lot of wild animals there. Um, other than the people. <laughs> other than the people, right? Because we are animals. But right. you know, in retrospect my folks tell me that I've been doing this forever. Um and really concerned about it. And I followed that path through, you know, into grade school and high school and college and, um, you know, graduate school. And so I think it's part of who, my, who I am. And I always say that I, I grew up in a really loving home. I was very lucky. My mom was very compassionate. My father was very practical, very positive. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, really the most optimistic person um, who I even I knew. So the cocktail... I like to say of my mom 's compassion and empathy and my dad 's practicality and also optimism had a good effect on me i mean i don 't mean that in a self serving way but right. I was really a lucky guy right well and you were
0: you were raised you were raised in a in a, in a way that sounds to me like that that the the principle of respect was uh it, it came in a warm in a warm glass of milk, if you will. I'm not and I'm not making that namby pamby by saying it that way. I, but I mean it it came with love, so that you you had a an environment of respect that that made respect not something that was peculiar or unusual. So, but I wanted to go into your introduction because you you, you make a, you make all through the book you make a number of uh, declarative statements and you you're you're sort of redefining what rewilding is and again I'm talking to Mark Beckhoff in his book called Rewilding Our Hearts: Building Pathways of Compassion and Coexistence and his uh, website is uh, Mark Beckoff dot com for more information. I, there's quite a lot there, so for our listeners who may want to uh, you know check more out. But again, coming back to your book itself and, and looking in the introduction, you, you start right off and you say, like you were saying, you've been studying non-human animals all your life, I sense that other animals had emotions and awareness. So now that's a, that's a piece that's not kind of spoken of much. So help us into that space a little bit and help us understand your perspective of that and also a little bit about what you've done with that perspective in terms of the literature that you've created and whatever you choose to say about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, if if this is where you're going, I mean, I never doubted, and 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 I honestly don't doubt now <clears throat> that other animals have very rich emotional lives. Um, you know, before I was, I guess you'd say I was kind of like a citizen scientist when I was three years old, mm-hmm. um, and I thought, I and, that, and I kept that. That was always in my, I suppose you'd have to say it was always in my head and my heart. Um, I, when I went to um, high school, I didn't like to dissect animals. Nor in college, and I spent two years in a PhD that would a program that would have gone on to an MD program, and I didn't want to do the the dog labs and. I, I other, was I was there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You know other other experiments like that. Right. right. Um, but what I really wanted to do because because I really like I said I really. I like science, and I think that was my inclination, was was weave in my passions, if you will, into my job. Mm-hmm. And And my dad was a very good model for that. He was very lucky. He loved what he did, and he just kept doing it forever and ever. Mm. And so I was very lucky. And when I started... You know, when I started doing formal studies of animal behavior um, after doing a couple of studies that I never would do again, but I, I learned from them decades ago, I just really thought what should really motivate my work would be connecting with these animals as whom they are, not as what we want them to be, mm. you, know, in a, you know, in an instrumental way, you know, that you know people sometimes look at animals in terms of what they can do for us rather than... Looking at them as having inherent or intrinsic value. Well,
0: they're commodities, of course. In the by and large, I mean whether they're you know parakeets or whether they're hot sides of beef or whether they're and of course, so there we are. Everything is wrapped up and you know in shrink wrapped at the uh, meat counter, meat, meat counter. And so, but you say we must uh, we must give wild and captive, including domestic animals, much more protection and we than we currently do, and recognize them and respect them as individuals. Now. Right. There, there is a str- again. A, a, you're you're reaching deeply, deeply into at least for me, for me, the reader, the, re- the reader me. You're reaching deeply into a, per- a perception of a, a, an awareness of and an an, ori- an orientation toward something that is that is true for people who are animal people. I mean, and, and how many people do we know with dog lovers and and horse lovers and things like that? People who have you know. Be, dear, dear, dear domestic pets who who know them as individuals, who know them as individual creatures and so on. But certainly the vast majority of animals in the world are not treated that way. And so you're saying that we've got to respect all of them as individuals. That's a great big jump. That's a great big piece for a lot of us. So how do you... I mean, I'm almost I'm afraid to ask you. Well, how do you expect us to do that? But, 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 but before I go there, yeah. give us a little bit about how to do that. I mean, or some thoughts about that, and how you how you how you're able to weave that idea into your thinking, and how you how you do, I mean, does that mean we're going to be vegetarians? Is it, talk a little bit about that kind of general thing, if you would?
1: Sure. Well, what it what it really means is that every individual matters. And that, um, in my work in conservation, then um, I work in a field called compassionate conservation, okay. so I work with people who are really keenly interested in say protecting wildlife habitat, which is wonderful, of course, or they 're interested in species preservation, and they may be willing to say well it 's okay if you know a one wolf dies for the good of five, or you know thirty rats die for the good of you know a million or or you know there's there's real world examples there's a project that was proposing that is proposing to kill corn and birds to save salmon or um, kill barred owls to save another species of owls. And so those are the big questions. And my my take then would be, no, you know, they're all important, they're all individuals, so we need to come up with non-lethal, more humane solutions, you know, in the real world. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. There may be trade-offs, but the starting point in compassionate conservation would be individuals count and first do no harm. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of materializes over into, of course, the use of animals, you know, for food, for clothing, in entertainment and research and education. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm vegan. I'm proud of it. I'm not a militaristic vegan in any sense of the word. I would like the world to be vegetarian or vegan, but it's not going to be. So the important thing to me would be connecting with other animals and in terms of, say, food choices, Um, I can't, for the life of me, understand why anybody would eat an animal from a factory farm. That would be the beginning, okay? Mm -hmm. And I would just say, you know, if you want to eat meat, I would like you to... It would be nice if you cut back, but at least make a pact that you're not going to eat meat from a factory farm. Mm -hmm. You might go organic. You might go to a small family farm. Of course, there's still problems there. But part of the rewilding process and part of the reconnection to other animals might be slow process I I like to say that people should go cold tofu not cold turkey Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I really mean that and so I have friends who you know are big meat eaters and, oh, a couple of them said, okay, <clears throat> I'm, d- oh, I'm only going to eat, have my favorite hamburger on Monday and Friday rather than five days a week. Mm-hmm. That is making a difference. Mm-hmm. And so people could say, well, that's not good enough, but you know, you don't get anywhere because... Because the fact of the matter is, it is, it may not be quote, good enough, but you're not going to get people to just you know change their lifestyle overnight in any meaningful way.
0: Well, you're you know speaking as a physician who is in, in, uh, obliged to ask people to change their behavior pretty right. much every moment. You know, <laughs> I, I I know exactly what you're talking about. And um, but but coming back to the term rewilding, I guess given that you. You obviously, this, it's in the title of the book, but it, it's it's in so many sentences in the book. I mean, it's uh, it's a word that is just uh, we just can't escape it. So, uh, coming back to that, you talk about rewilding as is a transformative and personal process. It's a call to action. It's an action within our lives. So, I guess what I'm trying to to, to to come back to what you were just saying, it's not only about Kind of what we're going to do in the outer world—it's what's going on within us, and it's in its kind of how we stand and how we see the world and how we actually behave in the world and so on. So, rewilding is is um, is a very much an inner project as well as an outer
2: project.
1: Exactly, it's an internal project. That's what I mean when I say it's it's a personal transformation. Mm-hmm. It's internal, right? What. what how I rewild, and if you will, to who or what I rewild may be different from yours, but it doesn't mean that it's better right. or worse.
0: Well Now let's talk a little bit about the meaning of wild, because in, the, in your introduction you do talk about wild and kind of the different sort of uh, uses of the word, and kind of so let's kind of tick off, if you would, um, some of the some of the, the meanings of wild, and again continually because we're here to talk with you because. You've written this wonderful book, and so we're trying to continue to shape our mind as we listen to you and let you tell us over and over again in the various ways you do in this text, you know, what, what this, what, how wild is, what does this mean? So talk about wild as a word and kind of how you've shaped it it's to, so we can better understand your meaning of the word.
1: Yeah, and that's a great question, and, 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 and in all honesty i'm not going to have one answer i I mean you can look at wild as meaning you know free to you know maybe the best definition would be you know free to be whoever you are okay okay um, and then you could say, you know, people say, "Well, are there really any wild and free animals anymore?" Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. and and well, you know, it's it's You know, once again, it's a relative type of a question. What 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 was what, what's wild now? You know, may not have been considered wild fifty years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, so I just sort of think of you know, and there's a difference between you know, wild and wildness and wild. But but when I mean by rewilding and and I'm glad you asked this question, it's kind of rewilding in a temporal sense to where we are now. Right. You know, like maybe I live in Boulder, Colorado and I've been here forever. And you know, ten maybe even ten or twenty years ago, I could rewild in places now where there are homes. Right. So it would be a different It would be a different, you know, sort of process to do it, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, So I always say, you know, the word wild, it's kind of a slippery slope. What's wild, when I lived in the mountains, I had cougars and black bears and coyotes and red foxes at my house. When I visit my family in New York City, I go to Central Park and I watch squirrels. Right. That's about as wild as I could be in Central Park, but the squirrels who live around my mountain home, I love them. But, you know, are they wild? They're wild. But, boy, I'll tell you, there's nothing like looking out the window or walking out your door right into the face of a black bear.
0: Absolutely. And we need to hold it there. Um, we're talking to Mark Burkoff, his new book called Rewilding Our Hearts. The building, para- excuse me, building pathways of compassion and coexistence. And you, Mark, please stay with us. And also, listeners, we'll be back with you in just a moment. Hello, Sonoma and beyond. This is the Dance Diva celebrating eight years on KSVY 91.3 FM in Sonoma or streaming live at ksvy.org. Tune in for danceable tunes from all over the world each Wednesday evening, 9 to 11 p.m. And remember to dance like nobody's watching.
2: The Sonoma Valley Mothers Club offers many great ways for families with small children to connect and have fun in our community. Get involved with local, kid-friendly family events like playgroups, holiday celebrations, parent education, and family support programs. Join the club for terrific socializing opportunities for parents and kids in this diverse community. Please call 996-9890 or visit www.sonomamothersclub.org for more information. KSVY Sonoma
0: welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Neto. Today, is joined by uh, Dr. Mark Beckoff and his new book called "Rewilding Our Hearts." And we're—I <laughs> had to say—listening to our Thanksgiving promo. Well, that'll have to be for next year, folks. Uh, we somehow our engineers didn't uh, keep, <laughs> keep, keep keep up to date on all that particular. But at any rate, um, coming back uh, coming back to what we we're talking about, we were just talking about kind of the meaning of wild and kind of. And 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 uh, Mark was giving us kind of a, a little survey of some of his thoughts about it. You also talk about uh, your, you know the, the pleasure that you had working with Barry Commoner and and the uh, the uh, Paul Revere you call him the Paul Revere of ecology. And you, and you mentioned and uh, Barry's four rules of ecology: everything is connected to everything else; everything must go somewhere; nature knows best; there's no such thing as a free lunch. So, um, and I'm happy to be reminded of, of you know Barry Commoner, because of course, for those of us who've been around like you and I for these years, Barry was one of those voices that we did hearken to. We listened to. We were we were joyous that this cheerful man who spoke these things. Uh, really started to put our nose into what we had to start thinking about, at least for me. And when you talk about ecology, sir, a lot of our listeners... May not really be clear about ecology, and so since we were just talking the, 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 the ecology that i kind of I call myself an ecological physician actually, and so I use the word all the time, but I think of it in the shorthand as as ecology as the bridge between science and spirituality um, but let's let 's hear from you, Mark, and kind of how you how you, i mean after all you 're a professor of ecology, so <laughs> you 're the person to ask so what what is ecology?
1: you know I, I in all honesty it's going to be hard for me to define ecology i mean i you know um, you know some people define it as you know you know say the study of ecology the study of environments for example landscapes mm-hmm. so, um, oftentimes ecology will be looking at landscapes and will have you know it could be based on the the fauna but one of the things that i always like to say as part of rewilding is is that ecology and habitats and you know landscapes invariably contain some animals
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and so immediately you know we get into sort of a more global picture of and i kind of like Sometimes I use the word landscape um, that sometimes to people means just, you know, trees and bushes. But but landscapes are really, you know, once again, areas where there are beautiful plants and, say, beautiful animals.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So then the ecology, then you're saying, <clears throat> is the acknowledgement of and study of the dynamics of that, in that case, that ex- sort of tableau, if you will, that that zone, if you will. But, of course, ecology... <clears throat> I guess because i i 'm I may be using it, the word improperly, but I guess I think of it as ecology is, is a is a respect for and, an, and an, a, an acknowledgement and awareness of the the necessary harmonic factors that that take place between living systems i guess that that 's kind of how I think of it sure. Um, sure yeah so so coming again coming back to i 'm just kind of working through your introduction, which i i 've got a lot, out, lot a lot outlined excuse me because i I found a lot of what you said kind of gave us a lot of structure to the, I mean I have this, oh, by the way I'm a big fan of Monique Moldenkamp as well so you're a publicist and she's oh
1: okay she, yes, yeah, she's a wonderful she, woman
2: she's
0: yeah. a wonderful gal and she does a hell of a good job and so I, I, I'm just saying that out loud because first because I like Monique, but also because you also mentioned it in your text. And and she actually she sent me this things of that you're prepared to discuss. And I'm hoping you're not minding if we're you know wandering off the script here.
1: No, no, I, I would I would prefer it. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, because okay. I mean I can do the script, but I I, I mean. Oh no, I, no. Okay, so now coming coming to um, again staying in staying in the inter- introduction just so far. I I kind of want to I, I want to face together, and I I guess one of the things I'm so happy to have you here for my last program of the year, and it's kind of important to me for us here in, at Health Matters and for our radio show and for our village of Sonoma and California and so on, that we sort of deal with some of the hard things. And, and not all is just, you know, lovely and sweetness. Uh, and one of the things you, you do uh, comment on, um, uh, Earl Ellis talking about the how we've transformed the Earth beyond recovery. We're mm-hmm. not going to get the planet we used to have. And I think... In a very, very kindly way, as I read your book, you tell us that over and over again in, a different, in, in, in the voices of different people and sometimes your own voice. And I think that's one of the things that I guess I'm hoping that our listeners can get from your book and from listening to you today and from, from their own sensibilities and so on, that we, we can't be sentimental about what we used to have and what we think we, maybe we still have if we if we could just close our eyes and wish well enough. Uh, so talk a little bit about your thoughts about that. We're not going to get back to planet we used to have. Tell us your thought about that.
1: Right. Well, that's tied into a lot of, excuse me, a lot of different um, studies, and you could say in behavior. And ecology. So we reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone, or we, we, we you know we repatriate them because they once lived there, or we introduce new species, or we you know new species into habitats where they've never been. The, the main point I'm trying to make, and maybe the best example is, <clears throat> we're reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone. We're repatriating them we're never going to get back the ecosystem that was in Yellowstone in the 1920s when the last wolf you know, disappeared it's not a negative thing like I said before, I've lived in Boulder forever, it's a growing town it's never going to be what it was when I moved here so I, I stress that not because it's a negative thing, but it stresses once again the contextual, um, if you will, um, pathways that, or, or the, con- the context in which with, um, with rewilding occurs. And so when I rewild now in Boulder, if I need to, it's different from how I would have done it 20 years ago.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And and, and so, yeah, Ellis writes, you know, eloquently about it. You know, look, get over it. We're not going back to what things were. And, And once again, you know, we tend to often romanticize the past, you know, but, you know. Past past generations had their issues and problems as well. But I really think, you know, when I I do a lot of work with kids, you know, I'll always say you're not going to restore this ecosystem to what it was. But it doesn't mean that what it becomes when you work hard um, you know restore it it might not be better mm. okay well that's you know, a hope that's you know, a, hope. That's a hopeful we know concept now, maybe it'll be more protected than past ecosystems mm-hmm. well speaking of that
0: and just that led Segsmaids right into the one of the other parts of the quote of of uh, mr ellis you you talk about it's no longer mother nature who will care for us but but us who must care for her and that's a that's a very very powerful idea and i think for those of us who had childhoods that somehow gave us the opinion or gave us the, the supposition that, that that mother nature could um to take care of it, you know. I mean, w- one way or another, Mother Nature could do it, and and uh, kind of like uh, uh, back in the days when we could throw things away. Well, there's, there's there isn't any away anymore, as the as the famous architect whose name escapes me uh, says.
1: So oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, you know, there is no more away. So let's talk. Let's talk about the. <laughs> <I> like that
1: <laughs> you, you, a lot. <laughs>
0: you, 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 don't, you don't know that line. I, I can't think of the guy's name. He's a, 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 a used to be the. Um, Used to be the chairman of the Department of Architecture at the University of Virginia and I did his name a company. But anyway, you you talk about the Anthropocene and kind of that's a nice word and it kind of is another way of getting into some of these ideas about kind of who we are and where we are and our self perceptions and so talk about what Anthropocene means and kind of how you use it in the book, if you would.
1: Yeah, the Anthropocene people use that to refer to the geological That we're going through, and it's called the Anthropocene, you know, mainly because it's the you know the age of humanity. And I always say that you know it's the age of humanity because of our incredible influence on the on ecosystems and the world at large. But there's not a lot of, if you will, humaneness in that um, age of humanity. So, you know, people adopted the term. It hasn't actually been formally adopted by those who do, you know, like geological epic labeling. Uh Uh-huh. But it really captures the essence of what's happening today. We are the dominant force in nature. We overproduce. We overconsume. We can be very arrogant. We leave very big footprints. And as I say that, I also, and I stress it in the book, we do amazingly good things as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pro-human as I am pro-non-human. Um, <laughs> sometimes people get in my face about that. But, the, you know, I travel a lot. I meet wonderful people. People who are doing wonderful things for the world and so you know sometimes they do things i don't like and sometimes i probably do things i don't like but the but the major thing would be that the word the anthropocene really drives home that we as anthropoids are having a remarkably just a remarkably bad effect on the world. (laughs) Right.
0: Well, as you say, as E.O. Wilson, you quote him in the, the beginning of your first chapter, he says, we have conquered the biosphere and laid waste to it like no other species in the history of life. We are unique in what we have wrought. And so, just just a formal way of sort of saying what you just said, actually, in your own way. But you also mentioned the, the Michael Tobias's comment about uh, the devastating effects effects of pain points. Talk about what that means and kind of how that's part of your perspective.
1: Well, when Michael, excuse me, when Michael used that term at this meeting in England, um, I think the entire audience you could hear, and it got deadly silent. Mm. And what he was referring to, and it's a beautiful way, is that we bring a lot of pain to the world. Not only, you know, I, I guess metaphorically, you know, to landscapes, to beautiful habitats, as well as to other animals. And so I love the way he he just captured that. It really touched me. I mean, I, I he's a good friend, and we went out for dinner that night. And I, I just I was stilled by the notion of. Pain point. Mm -hmm. What it does is, you know, we're not, you know, and maybe there are people who would feel this way, but you know, maybe it's not necessarily, you know, the case that ecosystems are conscious, although you know there's Gaia and all that. But, but, but we're causing pain. I like to say that the world is tired, the Earth is tired, it's wounded, and it's in its own sort of pain. It's continually trying to restore. And I also say that its resilience is really, really being tested. And so the pain point thing to me, or the, the phrase, just really drove home the point that at some point we're going to be causing so much pain, the resilience and the ability to recover or the ability for animals to recover and rehabilitate is going to be lost. Uh-huh. And, well, and so part of the rewilding, you know, paradigm once again is we got to start doing it now. Um, the, I, I really bristle when people just talk about the resilience of the planet. It's, <laughs> it's it's resilient, but the rubber band is being stretched and is going to break soon.
0: Well, you say the last remaining twelve percent of natural areas. So you kind of give us a very you know numeric uh, indication as to what what's left, if you will, and then you go on and talk about how that we have the supersized brain that that uh, that uh, we cautions us that we can't go on living as we have, but something doesn't seem to click. And you go on and say, and you say further, you say it's essential. It's essential we take lessons from other animals to find a way to manage our own population. So t- let's talk about that population piece because you make a good bit about that, and you and, and you, you mention how you were born in 1938 and it's tripled in your lifetime. And so talk about how you see population as as as, as a big part of the you know the dynamic that we're needing to face together
1: right well overpopulation which it is is really part of the dynamic worldwide i mean you know we we make too many of ourselves we expand you know tirelessly Mm -hmm. Um, and when we do that we displace animals and we take over you know prime habitats where you know they might live And and it's funny because when you go to meetings now, it it wasn't even like this a few years ago. People are less resistant to talking about overpopulation. But really, I would go to meetings and, you know, we'd be sitting there and and we're thinking, why are you not talking about the most important problem? Right. People don't like to talk about it. Right. And I'm going to actually qualify that (laughs) and say (laughs) people didn't like to talk about it. You're good. But I've been to some meetings in the last year, and, and you know, we talk about it, and then maybe, you know, we, we talk about, you know, overpopulation, but none of us, say, are demographers. But just raising the issue really is, and getting it on the table is important. And then we go on and go, okay, you know, how you know how is the fact that there's too many of us influencing you know say landscapes and the animals who live there but i i have to say that we've got to really focus on our numbers because we are we are running out of space and i know people get sick and tired of hearing about sustainable living they they get sick and tired of hearing the word sustainable absolutely they shouldn't yeah because we are going to run out of resources. I yeah, mean, yeah. we are. I mean, when it's not infinite. You know, you, right. you turn your water on, and I don't care if you're in the city. I used to be on a well, and if I forgot to turn it off all the way, the well went dry. Yeah. I live in the city now, in Boulder. At some point, I guarantee you, if everybody turned on their faucets, we'd run out of water. I mean, look what's happening in California.
0: Well, and we're here, and we need to take another break, Mark. We're listening to Mark okay. talking with Mark Beckhoff in his new book, Rewilding Our Hearts. Building Pathways of Compassion and Coexistence. For more information, uh, Mark Beckoff's information is at markbeckoff, M A R C B E K O F F dot com. We'll we'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay with us. And I hope this uh, break will be more useful than the last.
2: Every week, you can hear all kinds of music from Adagio to Zydeco, all in the space of two hours. Hi, I'm Pat Reed, host of Variations on a Theme. Tune in every Sunday morning from 9 to 11 for music, fascinating information, and lots of fun. The Wilmar Center offers peer support for children and teens who are grieving a significant loss. This ongoing group provides a safe environment for kids to express themselves creatively while learning ways to cope. Each group is facilitated by a professional bereavement specialist and trained volunteers. That's an ongoing support group for children
1: and teens in Sonoma. For more information, call the Wilmar Center at 935-1946 or email barbara at wilmarcenter.org.
2: K-S-V-Y,
0: Sonoma well that was interesting and uh, thank you for and welcome back to dr. Ned Hope today joined by dr. Mark Beckhoff, the author of rewilding our hearts building pathways of compassion and coexistence and we're we're just kind of walking gently through the beginnings of his book and all the time I read this, I was reading through this uh, this text. I, I felt in me the sort of feelings that I felt when I was reading Black Elk Speaks. I don't know if you if you can make any sense of that. Do you, do you remember that Nierhoff book? Uh, the, I do. Nierhoff yeah. book, and and it's uh, I can and the part that that I could remember, which is a very long time ago that I read it. But it's it's there's there's that part where Black Elk is crying, and he's seeing the world as that has that he hasn't been able to change and and there's a and of course what he's talking about is the dispossession of his of his people the Ogalala Sioux and, and from at the Pine uh, Pine Ridge reservation but as i read what you write mark i, I feel that you're remind you you're almost in a much gentler kind of way and you're you're kind of black elk speaks you're 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 telling us of the dispossession and you're telling us of the repossession we have as an option so i i'm just sort of throwing that out there and and uh, i don't know if you can relate to that at all but that's kind of how it felt to me
1: yeah, no, I agree. I mean, instead of dispossession, I might think of the word, you know, alienation or fragmentation. Right. And um, so, you know, when I say we, the raw we, um, you know, we're alienated from other nature. Or we're alienated from other animals. And um, what was the other word you used? I
0: I just throw flo- I just throw them out there. I don't know. Well, I mean, just
1: dispossession. Well, d- and possession?
0: Right. Well, dispossession in the sense that the... Well, again, you're you're using alienation, and of course, the you know part of that alienation kind of, as you as you say, flows from the belief that humans are superior to all other animals, that we are meant to dominate other species and use the earth solely for our benefit. Well, uh, and of course, there was that was what Black Elk was noticing us doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what we were doing, and, and here you are now, uh, almost well, not a hundred, but eighty years later kind of saying some of the same things, really, and at least for me, to to, to my readers here. You, you mentioned Eric Frome, which I think is also a uh, kind of an important uh, kind of connection because he talks of biophilia. So tell our listeners about what biophilia is and kind of how you use that term and how it's related to the way you present your information.
1: Yeah, biophilia is a term that, you know, is basically used to... Uh, claim that we have a an innate inherited natural. Inclination to be drawn to nature that it 's who we are, you know biophilia right. drawn, and so to you know bio to life basically mm-hmm. um, so what it, what it really argues, and I think it's, it's you know it 's exemplified in youngsters before they get unwilded is that you know we really like being outside, we find it really fascinating to watch other animals um, we learn from them. Um, we love walking down bike paths or paths. We like watching the ocean. We like watching trees. I mean, you know, just think about where you go when you're having a tough day. Mm-hmm. You know, why do we go out for a walk? Or, you know, why do we, we, you know, we pet the dog with whom we share our home? Or, or we, or we just go watch squirrels play. Mm hmm. And so what i use i use those exa- those as examples of where it's part of who we are it's in our dna you know and that we really feel, you know, good on nature. You know, um, you know, there's a book called something like "Your Brain on Nature," and it shows, you know, constantly how it has very positive effects on lots of different areas of the brain. And
0: then there's a guy that says he wrote about nature deficit disorder. I, I can't. I didn't actually read the book, but I remember hearing about
1: it. And. and so, um and well, well, that's Richard Love, and he wrote the foreword for my book.
2: Ah huh Ah Ah Yeah,
1: and and he talks about it in there exactly. You know that there's actually you know could be a disorder because kids aren't getting out, and even though it's even though it's in our genes and it's an innate predisposition to
2: right.
1: be attracted, we're not getting out, and therefore that alienation. Becomes almost like a disease,
0: right? right? Well, I think you. One of the things you help us understand, at least as I read what you're writing, you help us understand uh, the this sort of the sensitive, soft path of sort of feeling the feelings of our need and accepting those feelings as le- as legitimate, and and kind of hearing sort of the unspokenness. But but you also mentioned that we're living with homo denialists, denialists. De- denialis. So which I, I love that, and you, you talk Talk about uh, the magnificent delusion, as your quote uh, someone else. So, so talk about that denial function and, and, and how the Chinese Chinese warn us that closing our eyes does not ease another's pain, uh, and 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 we, we and how that sort of ties into sort of human exceptionalism. You make a, a really important con- a contact there, a contact there for me anyway.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I say we're homo den- denialist instead of homo sapien. I mean, you know, people who continually deny climate change in the face of, in my eyes, indisputable facts. People who deny or wonder whether dogs enjoy playing or whether elephants grieve, okay? So we have that amazing capacity to deny things and then sometimes just beat them to death when we, you know, when we talk about them. And I think that denial is, it's, it's stupefying, it's, it's, it's really halting progress as we move or, you know, as we move ahead in a world that's going to really require us to change um, our behavior. You know, I talk about human exceptionalism, and I try to, you know, say we're not exceptional. I mean... I'd rather say all animals are exceptional rather than we're not exceptional. Right. Uh, You know, no other animals build computers or fly planes or worry about taxes. And, you know, we do things that, you know, we do things nonhumans can't do and vice versa. And so people usually use human exceptionalism. Mean that we're exceptional. We we're special. We're and then it translates into we're more valuable. We're higher on the evolutionary scale, which doesn't make it you know doesn't make any sense to me biologically. Um, and then we should be treated differently. And because we're higher, our interests. Trump the interests of non-human animals.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big point that you make over and over in your book, and of course, and you make it successfully for me. And and and, and at the same time, I, I recognize that the the uh, hegemony of of the and the wish fulfillment of the of the uh, the despoiler energies, if you will, and won't necessarily blame any particular individuals, but the, you know that the part of us that seems to love to destroy. There's a there's a tremendous kind of um, what would you call it a, um, a battle of good and evil you could almost call it really and and, and I, it, I used to be interested in uh, education a long time ago when I was still involved in it actually and I I don't know if you ever heard of Summerhill the school in England.
1: Yes, I knew someone who went there. Oh, you did? Yeah.
0: Well, one of the things that A.S. Uh, Neal points out, he says there's, there are pro-life people and anti-life people, and, you know, it was following their sort of Reiki and... Uh, thematics. If you, will. I don't know if you know any anything about that, but the, the Reichians and about how he was saying basically that the the, the pro life people could could understand the kind of things that you write about here, but yeah. he says that the anti life people they just don't have the ear for it, and, and, and so we just somehow have to have our own life that somehow. Um, uh, we have to deal with the, the people that don't have the ear for it, but but somehow we we we're not going to be able to change them because they're they're wedded to that anti life position. So so how do you how do you I mean you in, in your book you deal with it a bunch of different ways. So I'm I'm not trying to trap you in one moment to sort of yeah. answer that you know such huge. Uh, situation, all in kind of a few sentences, but but tell our listeners a little bit about because I think many of us, in the, whether we framed it that way, but we we know that whether we call them, you know, profit corporate interest people or you know, the, you know the the war or I mean, how do you deal with that that you know there's the kind of pro life people, anti life people, and and what do you tell well, how do you tell us or you because I mean, you, you give us all kinds of different ideas. So again, I'm I'm making a poor question because I'm I'm asking the question and I'm taking away your <laughs> your answer. But so how do you how do you help our listeners kind of see a little bit about how you write about that in the book? I mean, say, say a little bit more. But how do how do you become re-enchanted? How do you become rewilded? How do you and how do you how do you because you're not only talking about a sentimental attachment in, in and in an engagement with nature, you're really talking about a deep transformative process that where that part of us that is anti-life, let's say, just to make the conversation easy, is really nurtured and and nudged into a really different place in the world. So talk a little bit more about that transition, if you will, as as an inner psychological matter, as a a matter of existential choice, whatever you choose to say
2: about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of them is realizing that, you know, there's stuff going on out there that needs to be... Fixed, If you will Being positive I have You know I call the The eight P's Of rewilding You know Being positive Proactive You know um, Patient Passionate Playful Present And and, But I really do mean that Being really Just really Committed to A cause No matter what it is It's your favorite It doesn't have to be Anybody else's favorite And really Understanding That the world, you know, and its inhabitants, if you will, really needs you and that what you're doing will make a difference and not getting trapped up into, you know, the, the pessimistic or the negativity um, that really surrounds or really centers you know on what, what you know people sort of adopt oh I can't do this oh it's too complex oh I'm too busy and really knowing deep in your heart that if you're passionate about something and you're persistent and you you really work hard on it <clears throat> that you do make a difference you know the other thing I say and and I think this speaks to your question is <clears throat> we're, we're, we're in a society where you do something and you get a paycheck or you get a gold star, which is great. I mean, I'm glad that, you know, you get paid for what you do. But the things we're doing for the environment, the things we're doing for other animals not ne- are not necessarily going to result in a gold star, um, you know, on your forehead the day you do it or even the month of the year or your life. Mm-hmm. So it's really being persistent and committed <clears throat> The other thing is, and I think this is maybe the biggest thing, is thinking of rewilding as what we call a meme, as a real cultural change that carries information across the world, like, like genes you know, carry genetic material. Mm-hmm. It's a meme. And working hard... To foster the idea that we are a single community, I mean, what happens in Boulder really can affect what happens in Beijing. Mm-hmm. It's not some fluffy stuff. And if you want, you know, if people want the proof of it, there's some really interesting data coming out. It's been coming out for a while how seeds from Africa get carried in the wind and get dumped in the United States.
0: Right. And well, so, I think that's a, that's a good place to leave it, uh, Mark. you you've really kind of come to the end of this hour we've come to the okay. end of our, end of our capacity to be with you, and you've been very kind to take the time you have to share your thoughts. And I think what you've just said in terms of the the eight uh, uh, however many P's the eight P's of, of rewilding that's a a, a a wonderful gift to us. And I and I take the book as a gift. Thank you for taking some time for us today.
1: Thank you so much, and I hope you all have good holidays. All
0: right, take care now. Okay. So, what a great book this is! And I, I frequently like my books, but I, I particularly love this one. So, upcoming at uh, this very evening at the Sonoma Shambala Center, the, thir- the Thursday evening, the the movie called. Sokni Ni Nanchen, nuns of Tibet. The um, some nuns of Tibet tells the story of 3,000 nuns living in remote, remote nomadic region of Nangchen in eastern Tibet who practice an ancient yogic tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. This is movie night in the community at the Shinoma Shambhala Center. They will begin at 6:30, and the movie uh, the they gather at 6:30. Then the movie begins at 6:45 or 7 o'clock. They'll serve popcorn and tea during the movie, and their a little donation is suggested and uh, to pay the movie royalty fees. And uh, then also this Sunday, the Solstice uh, Day Community Celebration. Excuse me, that's not this Sunday, but next Sunday. Um, That's at 10.15 to 1 p.m. Anyway, for more information, Sonoma Shambhala Center. This movie, for those of you who are all interested in Buddhism, I've suggested...